All right, so welcome to Guys Who Law. I'm Andrew Weisbrook. And I'm Jesse Weber. And we got a big episode for you today. We're going to be discussing the Bill Cosby case. Last week, Judge O'Neill sentenced Cosby to three to ten years in prison for drugging and sexually assaulting Andrea Constan at his home in Pennsylvania 14 years ago. Our guest today probably knows more about the case than anyone out there. At the age of 35, Kristen Gibbons Fedden was the prosecutor for both Cosby's first and second trial and delivered the closing arguments that resulted in Cosby's conviction. She's currently an associate at the law firm of Stradley Ronan and was formerly an assistant district attorney in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, prosecuting sex crimes and domestic abuse cases amongst, amongst others. If that's not enough, Kristen also worked as a financial analyst for Bloomberg and clerked for Judge Page in Montgomery County Court of Common Pleas and I think she was also a biochem major in college. Kristen? Neuroscience. Neuroscience? Okay, close enough. Kristen, as two fellow millennial lawyers who have to defend their credibility every day, why are you showing us all up? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that, that resume is so intimidating. First of all, let's give it a round of applause for our great guest. <laughs> That's both for you coming on the podcast and your amazing resume, which intimidates all of us. So welcome, welcome to Guys yeah. Who Law. Thank you so much. So I, I want to start from the beginning of this. Bill Cosby, before any of this happened, I'm curious, were you a fan of his? Did you did you watch the show back in the day? What did you think of him? I definitely watched the show. I think all of us did. Um, and I think like all of us, you know, we looked at the show and for some of us, you know, we wanted to be that family that we saw on TV, the Huxtables. You know, it's fascinating to think about when I saw him in handcuffs thinking that Dr. Huxtable just, you know, was sentenced and going to prison. I think it's one of the most surreal moments I've seen in recent history. Sure. And, and I, think, I think if I was the prosecutor on this case, too, like when I walked into the courtroom, the first thing I would do I was, is I would be tempted to look at, you know, how Bill Cosby looked and, and, and what his reactions were. Like, what, what did you do when you first, the first time you saw Bill Cosby in person after he was charged? You know, it's interesting because a lot of people ask me that question, but I, you've got to remember that I investigated the case as well alongside with Kevin Steele and now Judge Risa Furman. And so I had read through his depositions where he's talking about getting, you know, prescriptions for quaaludes and giving it to women to have sex and all these really dirty things that had already changed my mind before the public view, um, you know, before the public had access to this information, which we had um, introduced at trial. So at the time of the arraignment, which is one of the first stages in the criminal proceeding and the criminal justice process, I had already... Um, you know, saw him as the sexual predator that he ultimately was found to be. But when you first heard the allegations, were you like, this can't be, this can't be true? Like, were you shocked when you heard that? Did you do a double take? Well, I mean, did I do a double take or was I shocked? You know, I always, as a prosecutor, you always look at the evidence first, right? And so what I had to do is separate myself from, okay, this is Dr. Huxtable, to, okay, this is just an individual, this is just another case that I'm investigating, this is just another case that I could potentially be prosecuting. Let me look at the evidence objectively and see what conclusion I come up with or see what recommendation I want to make. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, initially it was 
oh my goodness, but I knew from, you know, prosecuting cases for years prior that I couldn't look at the name of the person. I couldn't look at the wealth. And the main reason is because if I was victimized in any manner, I would want someone to look at the evidence objectively in my case as well, you know? Right, right. As if he was just anybody else. That's right. And not be intimidated by his money, his wealth, and his fame, Um, particularly in this day and age. So I, I assume it was a lengthy process in terms of the investigation before any charges were were, were uh, pressed. You know, how did you how did That's you right. get a, how did you get assigned to this case originally? What was that What was that process like? When did they bring you in? Um, you know, I was one of the first people to be assigned to this case, um, and with any type of sex case, I was on the sex crimes unit, and so it was not abnormal for me to be assigned to the case. Um, and I was assigned with a key detective who, um, you know, we investigated the case together. I mean, initially it was, it was, you know, like you said, it was shocking and interesting at the same time, but, you know, I just kind of went to work with what I normally do, and that's investigating the case objectively, you know what I mean? Yeah, how, how large was the team? Like, where did you fit in? Were you, uh, were you, did you have someone that you were supervising? Was someone supervising you? Like, how did it work? What was the structure of the team initially? Sure. Well, because of, you know, normally with our sex cases in Montgomery County, um, you know, we, especially someone with with my background and experience, I would be manning the case on my own, Um, you know, directing the officers and investigators who were involved and the detectives. Um, But because of, you know, the national stage that this could have potentially gotten and that ultimately happened, uh, the actual district attorney, the elected official, who was Risa Furman at the time, mm-hmm. uh, it then turned to Kevin Steele, who you saw actually as one of the trial attorneys on the case. Um, initially, Risa Furman and Kevin Steele as the first assistant were supervising on the case. There were also other people supervising on the case, such as our chief of trials, um, Tom McGoldrick, as well as the chief of pretrials, who has a sex crimes um, experience as well, who is Samantha Kaufman. We also had our whole appellate team involved just to kind of review some of the legal issues um, that we ran into, like the statute limitations, whether or not we were within them, um, and different things that arise even before it goes to trial or even before it gets charged. Um, So we actually had a really large team on this. In addition to that, a bunch of investigators, detectives, um, and of course, uh, we had a lot of support staff who were like instrumental in helping us kind of do a lot of the research um, as well. We had like Heather Mackler, Caroline Goldstein. We just had a huge team assisting with every step of the process. And honestly, and keep in mind, we also had to man our normal caseload too. So this was just one additional case on top of the other you know, million things that we were doing as prosecutors and public servants. You know, it sounds literally like you're prosecuting Capone. You really had quite the team. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Was up to date? Was that the biggest case you had worked on to date? I mean, was that? And if it was, did you get nervous? Like you personally? Maybe you didn't show it outwardly, but you're like, oh my gosh, this is. This is quite the undertaking. How am I going to do this? So if you don't mind, I would like to answer that in a more lawyerly way if I could. <laughs> I'm sorry to be so technical. No, that's but I fine. Have to say, as a sex crimes prosecutor, I feel like every single case that I prosecuted was a big case because it was really meaningful to my victims. Um, so when you say, was that the biggest case that I worked on, I don't want to say yes because I don't want to minimize any of the other victims that I helped. 
But I will say that it was the most media coverage that I've ever received on a case by 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 so much more. Definitely. Um, so if you if you if you measure big in that manner, absolutely. And, and Kristen, how did, how did the media affect how you approach this case? Like, did it change? You know what you did at all in terms of your preparation, or in, ter- in terms of what you said in court. Like, what effect did that have? You know, um, it was more of a nerve-wracking process, but it didn't affect anything that I would have said or did at all. Because you know, when I was on, like, of course, when I'm walking into court, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many people. How scary and nervous. But then, as soon as I, you know, start talking to the jury, start talking to the judge, start questioning a witness, I got into my prosecutor mode, and I just didn't see anything else around me other than the case and the key people involved. You know, sometimes these big cases, the attorneys, the judges, they they become central figures. They become synonymous. People know who they are. Did you sure. did you did you enjoy any of the attention that you were one of the faces of prosecuting Cosby, that your name was in the news, that people wanted to interview you? Did you enjoy that aspect or not really? Um, I'm a really, I, and people find this so hard to believe because of, you know, my job as a prosecutor and as a litigator, but I'm a really shy private person. Um, so, no, I didn't, I don't like being interviewed. I don't like being on TV. But I am a huge advocate of, of raising awareness for sexual violence, particularly in an age where, you know, I prosecuted cases where people were too afraid to come forward, um, feeling isolated. I prosecuted cases where, you know, the stepfather, the mother and the stepfather were still together despite the fact that the stepfather was the one raping the child. Mm-hmm. You know, sex crimes and sexual violence is such a rampant, crime that is so underreported that I was, I'm willing to put my shyness to the side in order to raise awareness um, of this particular type of crime, as well as to hopefully reach those people and, you know, send a message of hope to all of the survivors out there who feel alone and who feel isolated. So, yeah, I'm not the type of person that really likes to be interviewed or anything like that, but if we can raise awareness together about sexual violence so that we can minimize it or put offenders off the streets so that our streets are safer for our kids and future generations, then I'm all about it. Well, I got to tell you, I've seen you do media and you're on here and you're doing a great job. <laughs> You've great on TV. Oh, you're, you're great so on media. But, but, Thank you. I'm but, like shaking as we speak. So. Oh, no, no, don't, don't, I guess don't. I'm glad that. I know Andrew and I are very intimidating, but please don't be intimidated. No, that's what people say. You guys are impressive yourselves, so I mean. No, you, you know what it is? We, we cover so many different cases, and honestly, the number one thing people say is, I wish more of these cases got attention because wouldn't it be great yeah. to show light on cases that aren't Bill Cosby, that even worse things that happen out there that people would be shocked to hear. So I, I hear exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And, and on uh, the company we work for, we, we broadcast trials around the country. It's kind of a modern-day version of court TV, law and crime. I, I know in Pennsylvania, they don't allow cameras in the courtroom uh, in terms of video cameras. Uh, mm-hmm. do, do you think that would have changed anything if, 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 if there was um, you know, any video coverage of what happened in this trial? I don't think so. I don't think that any of the ter- attorneys involved were trying to play to the media too much. So I don't think and, so. And I know you've probably heard this a million times at this point, but um, it's been said that if there were cameras in the courtroom, your closing arguments probably would have went viral. 
um, and that they were yeah. very that they were very powerful. You know, why, I know there were a bunch of different people on your team. Why do you think you were chosen to deliver the closing arguments? You know, um, in the second trial, um, actually, I wasn't the only one who delivered the closing argument. It was myself and my colleague, Stu Ryan. Mm -hmm. We delivered it together. Um, I went first, and then he um, went second. And really, to be honest with you, the only reason we did that is... You know, they were delivering, the defense was delivering a closing argument as well with two people. So we thought, okay, we'll do two people too and we'll split it up. Um, Kevin Steele would have delivered the closing argument. He's a phenomenal trial attorney, um, but I think he wanted to um, allow Stu and I, younger prosecutors, younger trial attorneys, to deliver the closing argument. Um, you know, just kind of as a proud DA, like our boss, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, giving the closing argument about a case that he knew that we were very passionate about. So I think that's why he allowed us to do it. So, so for a trial like this, I imagine that the closing arguments are really a monumental you know, part of the process because it's summing up su everything that happened for the jury. So in terms of your preparation, you know, what was it like prepping your closing arguments for that day? Were you up all day and night or weekends? Looking you know? in the mirror, rehearsing, yeah. you know, recording you it on tape. <laughs> no cards, you know. Oh, my gosh. It was nerve-wracking, absolutely. Um, as, you know, it's funny, as is all of my closing arguments. Um, I always try to look in the mirror. I try to rehearse it ahead of time. But i got to tell you, as much rehearsing as I do, it never comes out the same way. And it's funny because my husband is actually an attorney. Um, so he helps me kind of go through. He asks me questions that, you know, you know, when you're so into the case, um, there are certain things that you just say off the top of your tongue that you kind of forget, okay, these people haven't lived this case for the last, you know, year and a half or more like you have. And so you kind of have to take a step back. And so he is such a great resource in allowing me to take that step back. He's kind of, if you will, my mirror or my, my audio recorder because he's the one who kind of helps me. Okay, well, maybe you should mention this or that. Um, and it kind of is like talking to a real jury. So I do do a lot of rehearsing um, just because I want to make sure that the message that I'm conveying is clear and it's communicated effectively. Um, I also um, prepared a PowerPoint so that the jury could follow along because if you remember, we had five prior bad act witnesses as well as one um, complaining witness, the victim in this case. And so there was a lot of information that I wanted to kind of shoehorn into a short period of time because I did not want to lose their attention, although I probably talked for too long anyway. <laughs> no, I, I'm sure you were um, speaking directly to the jury, but at any point did you look at Cosby? As you were delivering your closing argument, did he give you a look, or was what was he doing at that point? Multiple times, and at one point, I'm sure as you probably saw, he laughed. Yeah. And actually, he had laughed a couple times. And one point, I, I I had to stop because there really is absolutely nothing funny about a about a person being on trial for sexually violating another person. There's really absolutely nothing funny about someone drugging someone to the point where they can't even say no, push away, or physically resist. And so when he laughed, I just became immediately enraged and kind of made that part of my closing argument because why, why, why would any of this be funny to anyone? Is, is it that you think he, is it, 
he really doesn't believe that he did this? Is he in such denial? Does he think that this is all a joke? Or some people have been saying he was so afraid and nervous that it became a nervous kind of laugh. I mean, you were right there. Maybe you have a better insight about why on earth he would laugh at that point. I have no idea, but I can tell you whether it was nerve-wracking or not. The smile, the giggle, the laugh, whatever we want to term it, was, was very offensive, considering considering the gravity of this trial and the severity of the crimes he was charged with. And you know? Yes. Whether, whether you're innocent or not, there's really nothing funny about this. Not at all. I mean, it's. I was right? shocked when I read that. I mean, shocked, yes, yeah. but also seeing his whole demeanor throughout the whole process. You, you talk about performing, right? You know, because being a lawyer in the trial is a little bit like a performance, and and a lot sure. of people don't realize that. Do you wonder at one point, you know, how on earth did this guy go years putting on a pit an image? As a family man, doing the Jello commercials, not even cursing, <laughs> saying don't use profanity in your act because it's not the right thing to do. Is it, is it the idea of he put on a fake face for years that he's that good of an actor? Or in your experience, when you see these people who commit these atrocious acts, they're able to just block it out. Like what happens psychologically? I'm sure this is a big part in a lot of the cases you cover. Absolutely, and it's interesting you say that because I think it's really important to note that at least all the crimes that I've prosecuted, or if not, then a majority of them, it's not about sexual gratification. It's about power. You see men of power, whether they're fathers, grandfathers, teachers, comedians, uh, people in high, um, you know, considered authoritative figures, you see these are the type of people who prey on individuals that they see as needing them or, or, or desiring them in some way, shape, or form. And so when you say, you know, he's putting on this face, was it that he was able to hide it so well? You know, I, and I kind of said this in my closing argument as well, that was the exact cloak that he was able to utilize so that he could gain the trust and confidence of these women, those five women that were in the trial, uh, as well as uh, Andrea Constan. It was that particular image that he was able to use to his advantage so that he could gain that power and utilize it um, to sexually violate these people. And so it wasn't, I don't think it was an act at all, other yeah. than it was what he, it was part of him. It was part of that, what I would term, a sexual predator. So, so you've, you've prosecuted um, all kinds of different sex crimes, seen a lot of uh, defendants on the stand, you know, being questioned, um, you know, and the, right now, the in terms of the Kavanaugh hearings, everybody's trying to evaluate. You know, he acts this way. What does that mean? Um, over the span of your career, are there any telltale signs when you're looking at a defendant and how they're reacting in terms of just how they're sitting or in questioning? Are there any telltale telltale signs that uh, you know show to you that they're lying, something's a little off, or they're guilty? What What do you look for? You know. Um it's interesting because it's really difficult, in, in my opinion, as a prosecutor, because as you know, as a prosecutor, we don't really have that much contact directly with a defendant. And so unless they get on the stand and subject themselves to questioning, they do, number one, have uh, a presumption of innocence, and they are, um, they are um, 
we are not permitted to talk to them just because they're usually represented by counsel. Um, and so that would, you know, violate any ethical rules if I were to speak directly to a defendant. Mm. Um, but, and a lot of times when they're in court, and this is if they're not on the stand, but if they're in court, um, they, they are kind of told by their attorney how they should act and how they shouldn't act so that they can create a demeanor, um, and, I think, and it's reasonable, create a demeanor so that they're not, um, judged based on the way that they're sitting or looking, etc. But I will tell you that when, that I've noticed that when defendants do get on the stand and subject themselves to my scrutiny, cross-examination, um, I find that a lot of defendants um, are very wordy. They have an explanation for every single thing. Um, and I always found that troubling because, I mean, I can barely remember what I ate for dinner a week ago, but yet they can tell you exactly where they ate, what they ate, uh, how much salt they put on it, to the point where the level of detail by which they are able to recite things that happened so long ago is just unreal. And so that's one thing that I have noticed um, just in looking at defendants is, exactly, is how wordy they are. Yeah, too too rehearsed, and you speak about yeah, too rehearsed. Too rehearsed, and you speak about the defense attorneys uh, coaching their clients about what to do. I'm pretty sure they never told Cosby at any point. I need you to laugh during the (laughs) closing argument by the state. I need you to laugh at that very point. They're probably like, "What are you doing?" (laughs) I hope they did not come to laugh. Um, I I want to talk more about you though, in terms of this case. So everybody knows that this was a retrial that the first case, there was a mistrial. Now, I I've, I saw uh, your interview, I think with the Today Show, where you talked about that you didn't feel the, to give up because you wanted to do it for all of the survivors. But I'm curious, um, for you personally, whenever there's a case that ends in a, a mistrial and you have to go back and you say, we're gonna retry it, do you think personally to yourself, hmm, I should have done something different? Maybe I, maybe I didn't make that point clear enough, or maybe we didn't do this right enough. I mean, I, there were differences, obviously, in the retrial, but you personally, I'm curious, was there anything that you looked at you said, I should have done something different? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I am always looking internally at myself and giving myself critiques and feedback so that I can be a better attorney in the next case that I try. Um, so absolutely, I always look back and kind of do an introspective type analysis on what could I have done better, what could, what questions should I have asked, what should I have said, what should I have recommended, and particularly when you're on a team, um, it doesn't necessarily boil down to one person because you're all there, you know, what notes should I have written, what notes should I have recommended, what arguments should I have said, so absolutely, there's always that. I know, but you know, with such a At big least with team, me, absolutely. yeah, with such a big team, everybody's saying them to their personal selves, you know what, it's my fault, it's my fault, I get it, I get it. <laughs> yeah. you, 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 you know what's interesting, though, when you think about the difference, there was a there, the retrial, you were able to call uh, different survivors and different people who had different accounts. I'm curious from you, though, if there were no other allegations, if it was only just uh, Andre Constant, do you think you would have had enough to prosecute, prosecute, excuse me, if it was just her case? If it was just her case, do I think... To be 100% honest with you, I think Andrea Constan, when she got on that stand and she testified, she 
was so honest. She made very clear what she knew, what she didn't know. She didn't try to hide behind facts that I think people would consider bad facts. She told it exactly like it is. And so do I think we could have, um, do, do I think the case could, I always have, I've always said, you know, this case rises and falls with Andrea Constant yeah. because she's just an amazing person. And, you know, like her motives, she had nothing to win to win by this and everything to lose. This woman was private. She had already, she's in a different country. She is not bothered by anyone anymore. And like now we're opening up this wound. Yeah, I mean, she is so brave to do this. I mean, she really is a brave right. person to do this. I, it's interesting because we but covered... I don't, but I want to be clear. I don't want to minimize right. the support and the amazement and the bravery and the courage of these five other women. Not even their trial. Not even their vindication, if you will. Not even their conviction for the crime that was committed against them. And they were willing to do... So I don't... I want to say that in such a way that I'm not minimizing them. And I also... like to always mention there was one woman in the first trial who who showed a tremendous amount of bravery and courage as well kelly johnson yeah. and so i mean that i don't want that to be lost either no not at all i mean strength in, in numbers and we covered the larry nassar sentencing hearing mm -hmm. and hearing all those women i mean it was just so extremely powerful but it is interesting when you have cases where it's if you just had one um, and, and there were not others, what would ultimately happen? But uh, luckily for um, this case, they were able to come forward and ultimately get the win for the, the prosecution. But yeah. and, 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 right. and always after a mistrial, too, you know, we're discussing internally, are they going to bring the case again? There's a lot of different factors that go into it. So between the first case here and the, and the, and the, and the second trial, there was a lot more that came out with the Me Too movement, all, all these celebrities from media companies and entertainment. Do you think if, you know, those allegations didn't surface, surface the, uh, the, the second trial would have still been brought? Was there pressure because of all those, those allegations for other cases that were coming out and making this uh, a trial that was more in the national spotlight because of, um, you know, different allegations that were going on around the country generally? Right. I have to tell you, I absolutely am a big advocate, and I love the Me Too movement. But I can tell you from working alongside Kevin Steele, who was the person who ultimately made the decision, even though um, now Judge Risa Furman was the one who um, made the decision to arrest Bill Cosby, because she was the DA at the time, between the first trial and the second trial, um, and actually, I'm sorry, at the first trial, between the charges being brought and the first trial, and then obviously into the second trial, Kevin Steele was the DA. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that he, he is a big advocate for victims and survivors. So I can tell you that with or without the Me Too movement, he would have probably um, charged it anyway because as long as Andre was cool, cool with it, and she was, um, because he is a strong advocate for survivors and victims. And it, I don't think it mattered who he was or the national climate because you got to remember, like, he charged, well, with Reese, obviously, with Judge, now Judge Furman, but DA Reese, they charged this case before there was 
that culture shift. Now, it was coming, right? It was certainly coming, but they charged it. That's why I found I, 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 my admiration for the two of them grew as I was in that prosecutor's office because they were able to put their names and reputations on the line to charge this type of case before the full, full culture shift. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the first case, though, where you have somebody who was convicted, sentenced, and sent to prison in connection with this. This is like if you were looking at the timeline of the Me Too movement, this is one of the pillars. This mm-hmm. is really one of the highlights of it. So, I mean, it really is a different chapter, a different saga, and it's going in the, in the right direction. My question is, I want to stay, yeah. stay with you, Kristen, though, because it's tough sure. working on one trial. You had to work mm-hmm. on two trials. And again, I told you I worked for a really large firm. We worked on huge cases. I'm curious, what did that do, you know, did you work every day, seven days a week, all-nighters, uh, barely slept? Did you at any point like think, man, I should have stuck to being, a, what were you, a neuroscientist back in college? <laughs> like, like, did you ever like, man, this law stuff is not for me? <laughs> yeah, man. I, I mean, and keep in mind that, even, that the, between, I think it was about 34 or 38 months between, first, before, between when we charged the case and, when, and the end of the second trial or either the sentencing. But you gotta remember, I still had probably about 100 to 200, 150 to 200 other cases. How do you do that? How do you do that? When I was in the DA's office, oh, it was difficult, you know, right after court, you know, you, you just, um, and, and a lot of times with the prosecutor's office, you're in court all day, every day, regardless, you know, so even though you're on trial, you're in court all day, all day, you're in court for uh, various things, case hearings, status hearings. I had multiple trials between um, the time we charged the case and the, and the Cosby trial, number one. Um, so, you know, you, you just have to do what you have to do. And then if you have a family, you know, you got to keep your kids and your husband or spouse, you got to keep them first. But then they always know that, you know, you're doing the right thing. You're out, you're wearing the white hat. You're trying to do, um, you're trying to make sure that justice prevails. So I have two little boys and my husband who are extremely supportive. I have such a supportive family who completely understood that it is my passion, um, you know, to help victims of crime. And so even though I'm out there kind of doing that, you know, that from seven days a week, all day long, um, you know, I always put my family first, made sure that they were the top priority. And then, you know, I would just work all night if I had to on the case and just get a little sleep. <laughs> People do not realize that what you just said, how how stressful it is, how busy it is. Superwoman, we're on, we have a podcast with well, Superwoman. One case itself is enough, but yeah. throwing in everything else. It's, it, it, yeah. People just don't oh, realize who are not in the profession how really much time that is so so for me Kristen, like when yeah. i when i when i have like a big meeting or something uh i'll you know have the same breakfast have that morning ritual that you know i know this is a sure thing kind of superstitious have some toast with peanut butter on it were there any yeah. <laughs> like consistent rituals you had before going to court each day um either as a superstition or just a thing you did like just to keep you balanced so mine's really stupid and i actually do this with all of my trials um I always make a trial binder, right? And that kind of just helps you, you know, remain on track. You know, each tab is a different witness or whatever it is, different motion, whatever. But in my binder, I always keep a picture of my kids, and that's in the front. And then in the um, end, I always keep a picture of something that they drew me or something that's meaningful to them um, that they want me to have. 
And um, I'll always say, okay, well, what, what, what should mommy put in her, you know, trial binder? What can mommy bring to court with her? And they, and they, you know, sometimes it's a new picture, sometimes it's an old picture. Sometimes I forget to ask and I have to kind of grab an old picture. But that's, I always feel like I'm not on top of my game unless I have a picture of my kids and a little drawing or something that's, like, meaningful to them, to me. <laughs> what it sounds like to me is this, ca this case came at a perfect time in your life. In other words, do you think 10 years earlier you would have been able to dedicate as much time, been able to put on the, the, the closing argument that you did, be able to do all the work that you were able to do? Or did it just come at the perfect time in your life that you were able to give the best possible uh, effort and the best possible performance you were able to do? the best possible time because 10 you know 10 years ago I wouldn't have had the experience that I did because you know I you can't just kind of wake up trying sex cri sex cases you know what I mean there's certain level of experience and um, legal aptitude that you really need to have in order to know what comes in and what doesn't come in you know it's not uh, a typical trial there are certain exclusions based on different laws like the rape shield law that like for example doesn't allow you to bring in prior sexual conduct and so certain things um, I definitely could not have tried this case without that background and experience and then just in terms of like my family life yeah I mean I guess if I could change it I wish my kids were just a little older because um, it was tough you know Mommy, don't go. We don't want you to go. You know, I got all of that because my kids right now are six and four. But we charged this, I want to say, in 2015, maybe 2016. Yeah, 2015. And so what was that, three years ago? So I had a three, you know, so, yeah, three and a one-year-old at the time. So that was, it was difficult, you know? So, so your, your kids are seeing you go to court every day on this one case. How do you explain to them what, what it's about or what's going on? Do you do you leave it for later on, or do you, or can you explain it now? Yeah, they'll, they'll be like, you know, why is mommy on guys who law? You know, we we don't understand. Like, what, yeah, how do you explain it to them? What's what's going on? I, you know what, I I I just tell them that someone did a really bad thing, and mommy needs to help the person that he hurt. Right, and and, and that's kind of where I leave it because I kind of don't want to get into, you know. Yeah. the graphic nature and the severity of the crime. Yeah. You know, particularly in my work, I, w I didn't want to get into, like, sex crimes with them. <laughs> no, no, I get it. They understand that mom mommy's <laughs> mommy's helping putting bad people away, and that's that's what's amazing. Right. It's You really are a superhero in their eyes. That's what's pretty incredible, you know? Yeah, and, and they're good boys, so they kind of... They allow me to be their superhero. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. I, I'm, we're going to wrap it up in a little bit. I just have a, we have sure. a couple of co questions. You ever think like, what is Cosby doing now in prison? I know there was a discussion like what his first meal was and all that. But do you ever think about maybe him and other people that you help prosecute? You ever think about? I wonder what they're doing in prison now that they have the time. They realize the reality, and this is going to be their life moving forward. You know what's interesting is I really don't think about that. And the main reason I don't think about that is because with all the things that are on my plate where my energy is focused more on how can I help my victims and my survivors move on beyond this. Because I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that the trial will make them whole again, make these survivors whole. But really what it does is it reopens the wound for them. Um, they're put under public scrutiny. They're being criticized, in particular on this national scale. You have... Um, 
you know, people still, like, sending out really mean, nasty messages about the survivors. And then, you know, me as a prosecutor, they're also sending me, like, nasty things as well. Um, so I spend most of my time and energy kind of focusing on how can I make, you know, Andrea feel better or how can I – and she's amazing, um, but, you know, how can I help other people and victims of crime or myself or how can I help – you know, self-maintain myself. I don't really try to think too much about what he's doing or what he's eating or anything along those lines. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you, do you stay in touch with the victims, the survivors? Yeah, in pretty much all of my cases. Absolutely. You just build such a rapport. You know, you got to remember, I'm asking them to do something really, really humiliating and embarrassing in a public forum. And, like, I know this one got a national stage, so you kind of saw that unfold. But... All courtrooms are, even though in Pennsylvania you can't video on them, there are public forums. Anyone can walk in and out. And so can you end, you have to say it to the jury. So imagine, like, having to talk about a time when you're being sexually violated and having to be cross-examined on what you were doing, what you were wearing, why can't you remember every single fact, why can't you remember the date, why this, why that, and, and all of your judgment and all of the decisions that you made were being um, scrutinized. So you really have to build a rapport with your victims and your survivors so that you can so that they can trust you to walk them through that process. Yeah, of course. So uh, 20, 30 years down the line from now, do you think that, um, you know, these issues that are going on now in, in terms of, uh, you know, sexual assault, you know, Me Too, Me Too, Me Too movement, that we're going to get past that? Or is this something that's going to be a consistent issue, um, you know? Going forward. Yeah, like, do you think, like, years from, from now, we could look back and be like, I can't believe that's what the culture was like. I can't believe these cases came up. Or is this just going to be something that's always going to be here, but we're going to slowly chip away? I really hope we can look back and say, oh, my gosh, that is what the culture used to be like? Because even now, as I sit here today, you know, uh, you hear stories about how women were treated and how, and men, right? Um, how people were harassed in the workplace. Um, you know, how, you know, women in, in courtrooms weren't allowed to wear pants. Like, you just hear these things. So I'm hopeful, as has been the consistent shift in our society, that as people become more aware, as they get more, you know, kind of smarter to culture changes, um, that we can look back and say, oh, my goodness, and be offended at the past, but be grateful that it's not the, that it's not the current or the future. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you, Kristen, for coming on today. Um, as two millennial yeah, lawyers. Thank you guys for having me. <laughs> you were fantastic. Yeah. Really. It was well, amazing. We're very happy Aww. that you're giving millennials a good name. Yeah. Because nobody <laughs> believes anything we say. So I'm happy one, you know, everybody can listen to at least one millennial. <laughs> you guys are awesome for even considering me a millennial because I know I'm on the cusp, but I like to say, hey, I'm part of the millennials too. Hey, here on Guys <laughs> Who Law, you made, you made the cut. You made the cut. <laughs> I don't. To be honest, I don't even know what is past millennial. Like I don't know what the one before millennial. I is. think thirty seven's the. No, but like I don't know what that generation's called. Oh, I don't know. Either. I don't mean either. Yeah. Eh, forget about them. Who cares? They'll do their own podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> really, Kristen, thank you so much. No problem. If I can ever be of assistance, you guys have my information. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great day. We'll speak to you soon. Thanks. Thanks. You guys too. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Bye bye. Wow. That was great. This is the first case that where where the defendant in a in a, in, a, in uh, one of these trials that's part of the Me Too movement was convicted. The, the people are going to look back at this case, and it's going to be the like, the first one where yeah, um, you know, the law finally 
prevailed and and we've gotten to this level. It seems like a timeline. So, so it was the uh, allegations, right? Mm -hmm. Strengthened the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. legal action being taken, and then hopefully change, yeah. right? Isn't that the trajectory you hope to see? And we were talking about 20, 30 years from now, it'd be great to look back and be like, I want it to be the same thing as, um, you know, when you look back and said, I can't believe women weren't allowed the right to vote or, you know, the same thing, separate but equal. Like how on earth did that happen? Um, and I want maybe hopefully we can look back and say, I can't believe this is what was going on, but this is the change. Yeah. And when her kids get older and they know more about this case, they're going to have a lot to look up to. They're going to be like, my mother, my mom was the one who, who yeah. prosecuted this. And right? best interview she ever did was on Guys Who Long. <laughs> so, well, uh, thanks everybody for listening and we'll be back next week. See ya.